Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Good morning, everyone. I'm Emily Gertz. Um, I'm a freelance and independent and entrepreneurial, <laughs> all of the above journalist based in New York, and I'm a, also a board member of SEJ. Thanks so much for coming out to our session this morning. It's the first of its kind at any SEJ conference, and um, we are super psyched to be see so many people in the room to talk about, you know, just the little problem of how we're going to save the news industry. <laughs> um, just a few quick notes. Um, we're going to talk. We're going to do some introductions and tell you a little bit about what we've been doing uh, for maybe 20 minutes and then open it up for conversation and discussion. Um, please, uh, when you're asking questions or responding to questions as we talk, please talk into the mic because uh, the session is being recorded uh, so that folks who weren't able to attend or who want to refer back to this later on will be able to listen to it uh, on the SE, uh, via the SEJ website. I think we're going to need to repeat their questions. Repeat the questions. Okay. Have to yeah. Mic out there. Oh, I see. Okay. You're right. Okay. So, yes. So, say your question. We'll repeat it back. Uh, let us know that we got it right, and we'll go from there. Okay. So, um, I don't think it's going to be a mystery to anyone at a journalism conference that, you know, uh, the news industry that we're all relying on, at least in some capacity, to make our livings as well as make an impact on the world, is in pretty dire condition financially. Um, in just the past few weeks, uh, uh, we've seen layoffs at uh, uh, Sports Illustrated, uh, cut its staff by about 50 um, after two sales from its uh, longtime uh, and original home at Time, the Time, you know, consortium of magazines. Um, uh, the website Think Progress, which was a indep editorially independent progressive news site, was shut down entirely by the nonprofit that had been its home since its founding, and a dozen people lost their jobs. Um, and I think within the past 24 hours, the website Splinter, which uh, for those of you who are familiar with Gizmodo, uh, the Gizmodo group was a, um, a part of that group of uh, blogs and news sites. Uh, its corporate owner, who bought it from Univision, who bought it in the wake of uh, the, uh, the media group being sued out of existence by um, a rapacious technology person, capitalist, uh, that uh, they, after promising that staff that there were no plans to shut down, just shut down entirely. And I think, uh, I don't, I think that was about six or seven people who just this week are now negotiating. Fortunately, they're unionized and they're negotiating for a decent severance. So this is all really dire. And um, uh, the folks who are at this panel today um, are folks, uh, we're all trying to figure out how to create uh, you know, viable news ventures and um, continue to report the environmental news that matters so much while also finding ways to stay in business and pay ourselves and pay other people respectably. Um, so, uh, as I said, my name's Emily Gertz. Um, I am, uh, um, last year, I began a newsletter called Deregulation Nation, where I've been 
uh, sort of tracking and analyzing uh, in Trump administration environmental rollbacks, as well as uh, better good and great news about uh, people and institutions and states uh, and businesses that are continuing to make progress on environmental and climate problems. Oh. <clears throat> are we doing the origin story now? Uh, no, just introduce yourself then. Your I'm name. Robert McClure. I'm the executive director of Investigate West. We're a Seattle-based uh, journalism studio focused on the environment, uh, public health, and government accountability. And uh, the sweet spot for us is um, stories that uh, are in the middle of that Venn diagram. Hi, uh, I'm Lindsay Gilpin, and I am the founder and editor of Southerly, uh, which I started as a newsletter back in 2016 when I got pissed at how the South <laughs> was covered during the election after the election, blamed for a lot of things, as it always is, um, and sort of blanketed as a monolith, um, specifically around environmental issues. You know, people parachute in when the coal ash spill or coal industry goes bankrupt or, um, or a coal company goes bankrupt. Um, or a hurricane, and so I started Southerly as a newsletter to sort of see if people would be interested in more stories about how um, folks in the South interact with their environment and the complicated relationship that people have with their environment in the region. And last year, I launched it as a uh, as a nonprofit publication um, last summer, so it's been about a year, and I have freelancers all around the region. Um, one of them is in here, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, and I also I freelance on the side because I am not paid yet, which I'm happy to talk about, um, which we will talk about mm -hmm. funding and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm just growing that. Um, one of the main um, goals of Southerly is not just to produce content, but um, partner with local news outlets to provide the stories that they might not otherwise have the resources to, to do um, or the staff to do, um, particularly around environmental health, um, environmental justice, that sort of thing. Um, and also report on climate change in an accessible way. Um, it was talked a little bit about in the panel la uh, yesterday afternoon, um, but not beating people over the head uh, about with statistics about climate change or guilting them into action, that sort of thing. It's more reaching people where they're at in a place that is historically reluctant, you know, the, where the people in power are reluctant to um, to move forward, <laughs> to put it nicely, I guess, um, and do that in a way that, that um, is more accessible. Good morning. I'm Tina Grego. I'm the managing editor of the Colorado Independent. We are a Denver-based nonprofit newsroom. Um, and the Independent essentially had two births. The first was in 2006 as a, frankly, as an arm of the Democratic Party infrastructure, two main funders, very wealthy Ds. Um, in 2013, Susan Green, who's a um, former colleague of mine at the Denver Post, an investigative reporter, she took it over and in and sought to make it in, entirely independent, weaning ourselves from those funders. Our focus is, I joined in 2016, and our focus is civil rights, criminal justice, environmental work. Dan Glick has provided us with some fantastic investigative um, journalism around Colorado's air quality and the permitting system. Uh, Susan, you may know, because Susan was the reporter, editor, who was arrested by Denver police for shoot, taking pictures of a police action on a public sidewalk. 
the city recently settled um, with her for $50,000, which I do not recommend as a funding model. Um, and we can talk about how all of that works together. But really, we're our silos, our civil rights, um, criminal justice. I'm a narrative, uh, narrative writer. I look a lot at public, public policy. Great. Um, so, Robert, um, why don't you maybe get into a little bit of, uh, they've already kind of expanded on how they formed their projects, so maybe tell us a little bit about that for Investigate West. Sure. Um, so, uh, I had been at the Seattle Post-Intelligencer covering uh, environment for nearly 10 years, and uh, for a bunch of circumstances that I won't go into f f at length here, I thought that my job was finally secure. Um, there had been a, a JOA battle that had just recently been settled, and anyway, um, uh, I, and <clears throat> one night at dinner, I, I went out to dinner for my wife's birthday, and I said, you know, for the first time in 10 years, I feel really secure here. Well, the next day, at 5 o'clock, I was on deadline, and I got a call from a source at EPA, and he said, Robert, what's happening to your newspaper? And I said, what do you mean? And then he said, well, go, look, go turn on King 5. And I turned around, and all the editors and reporters were streaming toward the, 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 uh, one of the, the, the where, where the news was on. And they were reporting that we were going to put, be put up for sale. And so that, that was how this all started. Um, sure enough, the next day, uh, this young whippersnapper, uh, newly appointed uh, Hearst uh, newspaper's vice president, came into the, into the uh, newsroom and, in fact, told us we were for sale. And um, we didn't know what to think about that. It was, uh, this is 2009, the, you know, the whole media market was cratering, and um, it was just a huge shock to the system. We just settled this JOA battle, we thought we were good. Um, and so about nine o'clock the next month, that was a Friday, so about nine o'clock the next Monday morning, we started, around the city desk, we started talking about what would become Investigate West. Um, ultimately, the Hearst Corporation decided that they would, in fact, um, keep a small online news operation there, and then they showed 90% of us to the door. That was about three weeks later, I mean, three months later when that happened. Um, and in the, in the interim, I and about 12 other people, including the managing editor and the deputy ME who was over the investigative team, and the investigative team, and me and Carol Smith, great narrative writer, about, about 12 of us were interested in doing something. Um, and then initially, and then uh, by the time the, the paper actually stopped pr printing, there were actually six of us who became uh, bona fide co-founders of Investigate West. And we're, we'll talk about, in a, in a little bit, we'll talk about the business model and how it changed. But um, so there were six of us, um, and we, we determined that we were going to be funded through um, philanthropic grants, and we, we can talk about that. We, that has been our, our biggest funding source. Um, uh, so we actually uh, opened our office uh, on April Fool's Day of 2009. And um, as of July, we had a, a website up, and we were blogging. We thought we would be doing a lot of blogging. That was a dumb idea. Um, uh, we did land a, our first, we got some money from the Fund for, for Investigative Journalism pretty much right out of the gate. Very, you know, like I don't know, three or $4,000. Um, we landed a, um, a $40,000, no, $50,000 grant, $40,000 grant the next October uh, from the Bullet Foundation, um, which has been very good to SEJ, too. Um, and um, and they, were the, they were really the ones that sort of had the vision that, yeah, we need some 
in-depth environmental reporting to be around. And also, I've known Dennis Hayes forever, and he t totally gets independent media. So it was, but that, that actually catalyzed an Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation grant in February. And at that point, we were down to, well, one person had left to uh, go back to school, and so I guess we're down to five. Any, in any case, it was 14, we were on unemployment for 14 months. Um, I, um, I, I mortgaged my house, so I, I mean, re refinanced my house. We we're about seven years in, you know, just starting to pay the principal down. down. So uh, I'm now 60 years old, and I have a mortgage that goes until 2039. Uh, I can, I'll continue the story. I feel like I've been talking for too long. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, like, uh, I have a somewhat similar experience in that I was, uh, I've been freelance for most of my career, which uh, uh, began pretty much as a, as a journalist who reports news and not just necessarily a web producer was in around 2003 or four. Um, I was, I've done a couple sort of uh, crowdfunded type projects. One was called Bracing for Impact, which was uh, through Beacon Reader, uh, which was an early attempt to help journalists crowdfund original reporting projects. And, um, but then the holy grail happened and I got hired for a full-time reporting job at the end of 2014 with um, an outlet called Take Part, which had been started by a film production company called Participant Media, uh, which is very well known for producing very good movies about hard-hitting journalism. And, uh, um, and then, uh, unfortunately, within a few months of uh, my joining this newsroom, which had started within the year, uh, they began the dreaded Kinsey review, uh, which is where these consultants come in and look at the whole corporation and then go back, to this case, to the only person we knew of who owned the company, uh, one guy who got rich co-founding eBay and um, apparently told him that news wasn't going to be a going thing. Because uh, uh, right after the 2016 election, um, they announced that they were going to shut down our entire newsroom, uh, which included maybe around a dozen people altogether, including journalists and um, uh, art people doing our, our photography and art and um, engineers maintaining and improving our website. So uh, they treated us very well in the severance. It wasn't like um, Robert's severance, fortunately. We had a lot of notice, and um, uh, uh, we got severance packages, and the money that I got from that severance package kind of became my runway uh, to start my newsletter. Uh, I began freelancing pretty much right away in 2017 and um, was kind of shocked at that the, you know, I shouldn't have been so shocked that the freelance rates were not only very flat, uh, but in some cases seemed to have gone backwards. And my, you know, two years of producing regularly features and follows and even covering breaking news for a newsroom didn't seem to move that needle. And I began thinking there's got to be some other way to try to do this. So I, um, in, in, in mid-2017, I applied for this entrepreneurial journalism fellowship at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism in New York. And I was accepted and launched the newsletter while I was a fellow at CUNY uh, in 2018. 
um, one of the things that uh, we were taught as fellows was kind of uh, agile business development, which is a form of business development where you, instead of saying, I know the answers to what the world needs in, in terms of a product, which in news terms would be how you deliver the news, uh, you, you go out and you actually talk to your prospective audience and say, what do you want? And um, so when I did that, what people told me was, um, the environmental news is too depressing, I don't read it. And, and I heard this, like every person in my fellowship, when I simply said I'm an environmental journalist, they, they, they spontaneously said that. Uh, science and environmental reporters I interviewed said that. They said, I, I do my stories, but then I don't, I'm not keeping up on stuff I'm not actively reporting on because it's too depressing. So I came up with this format for the newsletter, uh, um, Bad, Better, Good, Great, where I started with the bad news and then kind of worked my way along to uh, what was hopefully a really uh, good news story about actual environmental progress. Um, and uh, that was my attempt, or remains my attempt, to sort of gear a news product to what, what readers need um, in order to keep reading the news. Um, so I just wanted to ask, first of all, like Tina, when you were developing um, the Colorado star like did you folks talk to people about what was missing in the Colorado news landscape or you know um, did that was there a niche that you knew you were trying to fill for people so I have to say Susan Susan started in 2013 she's the one that took it independent she will tell you that she had no concept whatsoever of a business plan um, and when I came on board in 2016, we were in the same position. It was like um, we tell the story of uh, being at an INN conference and literally chasing a knight grant officer through the lobby <laughs> and you know, pinning her down and saying, look, we're here, and we want to go here, and we see here. We can see it. It's within our grasp, but we don't know how to get there. And she said, well, what's your business plan? And we said, what business plan? And so she talked to us about that, and she said her upshot was, what you guys have is a newsroom. You don't have a nonprofit. You have a newsroom. It sounds like you have a really strong newsroom, but you don't have a nonprofit. And you're never going to make a go of it until you learn how to develop the nonprofit. And so much of what we've been trying to do over the last few years is come up with uh, business plans. The the issue with the business plan, which is more than a revenue model, is uh, is that the landscape is changing constantly. And that means that we have to be really nimble about something that we thought we could count on now is not necessarily something we can, something we thought we could count on then is not something we can count on now. It's, it's a, it is a constant freaking hustle all the time. And so, you know, we had to learn to, you know, come up with the dreaded value proposition. And what do we offer that nobody else offers? And we did come up with a business plan. And I can tell you we probably haven't looked at it, you know, for a year because so much has changed in Colorado since. The Colorado Sun has come on board. And so what does that mean for us? So it is a work in progress in terms of that development. Yeah. Um, 
So in terms of like business development, Lindsay, you're kind of pursuing a multi-pronged approach, right? Where you're publishing stories, uh, but you're also collaborating and putting on events. Like, could you tell us a little bit about about how you're trying to make it work as a business, a nonprofit business? Yeah. Yeah, so um, so Southern obviously covers a region of the country, which and that's the gap that I have been trying to fill um, in coverage of environmental issues specifically, um, you know, in a magazine format online. Uh, and at first, that was sort of just the idea, right, was to sort of fill this gap and become an authoritative voice in the South um, around these things. Uh, and even just in the last year, it's, um, you know, I knew, obviously, there's this local news crisis, particularly in rural areas of, of the South, obviously other other rural places um, in the country, but um, so so many gaps in our region. And so um, kind of from the you know, from the very beginning, got a small grant from Solutions Journalism Network uh, and partnered with a Gannett newspaper in Montgomery and uh, the Montgomery Advertiser. And so we did a four-part series on um, the lack of wastewater treatment or wastewater systems in rural Alabama, right outside Montgomery, and uh, in mostly black communities that um, were very poor and it, how that's led to a rise in hookworm and other public health risks, and then how climate change is exacerbating that because of more standing water and more heat and uh, more rain. And so we did this series, um, and one of the Montgomery Advertiser reporter, she wrote one story. I, it was just, sorry, so I wrote like two stories, <laughs> which I don't do anymore. Um, and then uh, I hired a freelancer from Alabama to do that. So that was sort of the model from the beginning. It's like people living in these places should be writing about you know the, the places that they live. And then we culminated the series with an event um, in Lowndes County, where, um, which it was about. And it wasn't anything super novel, right? But it was a panel of, um, there was an engineer and an activist and then um, the journalist from the advertiser and then um, a health department official. And like a couple days later, they actually sued the health department over this whole racial discrimination um, uh, over these wastewater treatment um, fines. But anyway, the event was just getting people in the same room to talk about this thing that everyone knew about and was dealing with individually and wasn't talking about. And it was also obviously to kind of show them what Southerly was and what the series did and that sort of thing. And so that model, um, you know, not specifically like solutions journalism model, but like that model of partnering with local outlets and, um, and then going to those places afterwards, um, and I'd like to do this more, and speaking to the people that you're talking about and who should be reading the stories and continuing the conversation rather than just throwing a ton of information at people and, um, and expecting them to just figure it out. Um, like that, that approach is really, has become really foundational to what Southerly is. So I've gotten some grants since then to do uh, events in rural areas. Um, and they're very small, obviously, but uh, just to get you know forty people in a room in Eastern Kentucky and talk about media literacy, like what is uh, what does off the record mean? Like what do you think? How do we get our data? So in that case, we like partnered with two like a Report for America fellow and um, an NPR affiliate station, and because I think that yes, we can put out all of this content, but there is no way to build a better, a stronger media ecosystem in a place that really needs it um, unless you're on the ground talking to people in those places um, and partnering with local news. Um, and I think that even just with fundraising, um, that message resonates more. <laughs> um, as you know, there's like 
this, you know, with the Knight Foundation and with all these other um, big journalism funders, it's, we want to fund local news. We'll, we'll fix it. We're going to fund local news. And, you know, like, there's the amazing ProPublica local reporting network, and there's Report for America, which is growing and growing and growing. Um, but it's still, especially for regional outlet, that money, like, trickles down very, very <laughs> slowly to, uh, like, entrepreneurial efforts um, and efforts that are sort of a different model than um, kind of the traditional, like, we'll just save newspaper model. And I think that that's sort of what I've, how I've switched um, the the kind of fundraising around Southerly and also um, just the, the message to individual donors. So, like, I, <laughs> so Southerly started on Patreon, so I just was like, here, if anybody wants to see stories reported, like, you know, donate to this campaign. And so since we've grown, like, the individual donors, so it's, like, mostly five, ten dollars a month, and nothing's, like, paywalled or anything like that. Um, so I pay freelancers for th that um, at above average rates, um, because I think that's really important. And, um, and then the goal, you know, I'm just fundraising from foundations on the side, and that is, and we can talk about this more, but that is where that's really difficult for all the reasons I just said. And I think that um, kind of mo uh, messaging it around, you know, we're supporting local journalism, um, but also bringing context um, to a region that, and connecting the dots for people in a place that often feels really isolated. Um, and that, you know, that's probably the case for all, all over the US, I imagine. Um, and so, so sort of messing with that over the last year has been really interesting for me. Especially because I'm like fundraising and editing and doing social media <laughs> and marketing, and it's it's a lot. And obviously, we don't. I went to I got a master's in journalism, uh, and at Northwestern, and like I don't know if they ever mentioned like you might start your own thing one day, or this is how you <laughs> handle freelancers, or any of that. So it's really interesting to see, like you're saying, how fast it changes, and um, and that no one no one knows how to do it clearly <laughs> with all of the layoffs and everything. So it's sort of just um, just messing with it as it goes. But I think that um, the kind of the value proposition in, in Southerly is that like building this stronger media ecosystem is, is sort of becoming part of the business model, which um, is not necessarily what I thought and is uh, like way harder <laughs> than I, I imagined I would be taking on. Um, so it's just kind of, I'm happy to talk more about that specifically, but it's it's been really interesting. Yeah. So, Robert, um, you know, um, so Lindsay's doing a lot of collaborative work, and you you folks have have sort of termed Investigate West as a studio. So, collaboration is is really built into your business model as well, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let me talk about uh, go go just to go back to, to our original. Uh, start when we originally started. We got um, pro bono help from well, Bill, Bill Dad's Bill Gates' dad's law firm to get us incorporated for one thing. But um, uh, but uh, Point B Consulting, which was a, a well-known worldwide consulting firm, and uh, they helped us to come up with a, this is back when we still had like twelve people working on this um, a business plan, uh, and it was that we were going to we were all print people, lots and lots of experience. Um, we were going to report and fundraise across the West and distribute our material to newspapers across the West. And so this business plan is predicated on, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but like every two weeks we're going to sell the LA Times and the um, San Francisco Chronicle and the Oregonian and the Seattle Times a story for $700. And then there are these other papers that don't have as much circulation and we're going to sell it to them for, you know, 450 or what I'm getting the numbers wrong, but it was a syndication thing and it was it was um, and it was across the west. 
And um, by the way, I got outvoted on the name. I did not want to have Investigate West, but that's why our name is Investigate West. Um, so, so it was going to be a West-wide. Yes. Well, it, f then um, a lot of things happened, but it, it, but it became apparent that that those numbers were not there, and in fact, the demand was not there at all. I mean, this people were newspaper uh, people were running around like with their hair on fire, you know, economically. So they they were not going to that was not going to work. So we rethought it and we said, okay, we're going to be regional. We're going to be the Pacific Northwest and we're not going to just do print. We're going to become what, what we, it was an evolution, but what we are now is we're a journalism studio. So you think about a, a movie studio, it's this place, this piece of infrastructure and people with various talents come there and they put this project on and then they go away and then some of those same people come back later and some other people might come in anyway and they and they work on this thing and they, they put together a um, uh, You know a movie. Well, well that's kind of how our journalism works. We're also like um, we're also like a studio and that we have there's way way more um, by virtue of our uh, long experience with environment and public health and government accountability in the Northwest there's all the, uh, lots of different um, stories we could cover um, and so uh, just as the movie studio gets all these scripts, we have story ideas, and we can only do just a few of them. And so, um, and I guess um, the other thing about being like a studio is we don't have any movie theaters. Okay, we just have the studio. We have this little website. It gets about ten thousand uniques a, a month, and about half of them are just coming in sideways. So, um, so that's what we do. We place this in our material with other. Uh, news venues and we specifically when we pulled back to the Northwest we said let's try and work with broadcasters and we've done some of that over the years the collaborations um, <laughs> so w w a lot of what we do is kind of like a standard uh, freelancer we come up with an idea we kind of and the, just briefly when when we do go to think of uh, this is our value proposition is, is that we're gonna do stuff that nobody else is gonna do that can has the op has the possibility of actually affecting um, change in, in public policy or corporate practice. And so just to, to our, our, briefly our story of choosing process is, number one, is another news organization likely to do this and do it in a pretty good way? They don't have to go and file public records requests like we do and they don't have to go as deep as we do. But, uh, so, and, and, and then the second thing we ask is, is there a solution or something that could make this situation better? And then the third thing we ask is, could investigate West getting involved? Is it conceivable that us getting involved could actually move the needle? And uh, the corollary to that is, who is our news partner or potential news partner for who this would be a good, uh, a good project? And so we don't always answer all four of those questions the right way, but most of the time that's how we do it. And um, uh, so that's that. So that's how, that's our. Uh, so the business model has evolved. We're a, we're a studio um, that sometimes involves reporting shoulder to shoulder with uh, another organization. More often, we are uh, we're providing the the content or some of the content. Sometimes, uh, some of our partners might have the capability, for instance, to shoot photography, and that's great because that's money that I don't have to pay. Um, we do ask them to pay us. So our um, our business model is that we sell our product for a lot less than it costs to produce it, and we make up the difference. I don't know if that's a business model. And we make up the difference. We make up the difference through philanthropic foundations and uh, a growing list of individual donors, uh, and we and we do get a, you know like five to ten percent of our budget from sell, selling our stuff. I guess I should stop there. Okay. <laughs> um, 
Okay. Well, um, just so you know, we're gonna we're gonna go a little past the ten fifteen end time. All the uh, all the panels uh, started a, a little bit after the hour, and so we're gonna go a little later. And I think, but at this point, I'd like to open it up and start a conversation. Um, and um, just as a reminder, so you'll say your question. Um, um, you can direct it to one of us or to the panel, and I'll repeat it, or the panelists will repeat it, and then we'll go and answer. Yeah, uh, and please say your name and uh, tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah. Um, okay, so the question is, um, um, could like the whole scene of starting up news, uh, new news operations be helped by better industry leadership that would educate the public on the value of journalism? In, in Colorado, with the gutting of the Denver Post, the closure of the Rocky Mountain News in 2009, um, we have a petri dish happening now. We have Chalkbeat, which focuses on education. We have us. We had Denverite, um, which was a small newsroom that focused on just on Denver, and that was a that became absorbed by Colorado Public Radio, which is growing like crazy. In the in the kind of scurrying around that's happened. Um, with Alden gutting the Denver Post, um, we now have something called the Colorado Media Project. Its slogan is that local news is a public good. And this is the entire proposition. How do we, um, how do we keep building capacity into the local news network? What is it going to take? And Colorado Media Project, in fact, they have a big white paper coming out on Monday. They're in their second year now, and what they're really trying to do is increase collaboration among newsrooms, reduce some of the pack journalism, figure out how do we pick our shots among one another. And um, next year, for example, Rocky Mountain PBS is moving into a new building in downtown, and many of we smaller news outlets are going to move into that same building on the same floor <coughs> so that we can... Uh, further engender a kind of collaboration among one another. But I, I would say that, you know, Colorado Media Project started basically with three wealthy men who care about the news and who said, what are we going to do? How do we study this? How do we come up with a business model? Uh, how do we prevent um, saturating some parts of the of the news landscape or the market or um, and, and completely ignoring others. And so there is right now in Colorado a, a nascent but growing attempt to provide that kind of leadership and it did not come from the industry. They, it came from, you know, DU's business school and um, largely that they've been coordinating this effort uh, as, a, as a business Proposition: How do we how do we strengthen our local news landscape? Um, yeah, I think that's. It, I, I don't believe that the industry is going to change that itself. I don't think, I don't think big journalism funders are going to change that. Like how they fund um, news outlets, I don't. You know, there's still this idea that if you just convince people to subscribe to their local paper, we'll save everything. And like, that's not how it's gonna work. It's just not. And like, you know, obviously that's a very important thing for people to do. Um, but like you're saying, I mean, it would it would 
be wonderful if the industry would support more um, kind of public engagement. And I think actually a lot of fundraising is going towards that. Like we need to talk about democracy and community engagement and civic engagement. Like those are buzzwords, right? Um, that I see a lot just in my short time just trying to fundraise. Um, but I don't think, I think it really is going to come from things like the Colorado Media Projects because there's a lot, there's in North, I'm in Durham, North Carolina now, and there's um, really great collaborations in North Carolina among news outlets, um, funding wise and um, and reporting wise. And then there's also all kinds of like Florida has a climate change kind of collaboration reporting, but it's still, it's still not a ton of money. And that's really shitty, <laughs> you know, and, um, and it, it's frustrating because I don't, I don't think that it's the model of, of funding is, is going to change in that way. So I think it's going to take things like that. I just want to, there's a, a very small effort. We, we were co-founders of something that's now called the Institute for Nonprofit News. It was founded um, in 2009 as the Investigative News Network. And then we just started figuring out that, hey, there's all these nonprofit news organizations that they need a home too. And so that's when it got converted to, to Institute for Nonprofit News. They, they are not doing what you ask about, Heidi, but um, uh, but they're thinking about it. <laughs> Let me put it that way. They, 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 we, we all get together annually, and we recognize that need. And I, I would, I would expect that that the, I, I think the nonprofit news movement is is better about talking to uh, our consumers than the for profit news news movement was. That, but we need to do a lot more of it, and we need we need a lot of help. Okay, so uh, Todd asked. Uh, let's let's start with the first question. Maybe Tina, like, are you guys uh, uh, and gals and people um, finding a way to measure impact uh, the, of the work you're doing at the Colorado Star, Colorado Independent, Independent? I'm sorry, I tried not to do that. Um, <laughs> I mean, we measure impact in traditional ways. Are we changing public policy? Are we um, um, living up to our mission, which is to watchdog power and to amplify voices otherwise unheard. So, you know, we have that kind of checklist when we're looking at our stories. It, it has been, and, and Susan has dealt more with major funders than I have, um, but it is definitely a process of educating funders and moving them away from first, from views, page views, uh, to time on stories, time on page, to the kind of deeper measures of are we turning our, our readers into some sort of community? Are we building relationships with our readers? Because... Um, because that is what's going to help sustain us. Um, so some of our metrics have moved, if we're looking just at metrics, to our newsletter. You know, how many people do we have on our newsletter list? And more importantly, because that number is bullshit, um, is how many people are opening our newsletter? How many people are clicking through on our newsletter? Um, or plural newsletters. And, and so some of that is really a matter of educating funders as to where there, where there can be a disconnect because there's initially they're really interested in the big numbers like how many people are reading this story and where are they reading it um, and it, that, that's just an ongoing process yeah I would say I mean Southerly is obviously very new <laughs> but uh, I think that kind of traditional 
thinking about the traditional ways of impact and you know policy and doing investigative stories and that sort of thing. But more so, I've been thinking a lot of since it started as a newsletter, um, kind of like you're saying, that's it's a really interesting way to look at building relationships and building a community and seeing who you're reaching. Um, and I think the way I really want to understand impact is are the people who were writing about reading the stories and right now that's not necessarily the case because it's online um and so that's sort of where i'm thinking of it in the future if you know if with these collaborations with local news uh working with local news outlets you know there's really no impact to me unless that those people are seeing it. and does that mean partnering with tv stations or radio stations or getting information out in more creative ways like in schools or um and with flyers or that sort of thing and i think that sort of impact um is really interesting to think about and and i think it could help with fundraising too like i was saying i don't think the traditional journalism model of funding is like landing as much anywhere but this sort of this collaboration like are we engaging people um in their in their places that they live uh, is kind of an interesting way it's going. Can, I just, to follow up on that, Lindsay, like, um, do you have a sense of why why your your pickup among the people in the communities isn't as high as you'd like? I mean, is that a question of publicity or is it a question of sort of the the delivery mechanism? Like, could is there a way? Like, everyone pretty much has a smartphone these days, right? And would there be a way, do you think, that you could maybe tailor how you're, how you're actually getting your product, quote-unquote, out there that could reach those people? Or is it more just like more people need to know that you're out there doing this stuff? Well, I think part of it is just time. And then the other part is, you know, it started as an email newsletter, so it's a younger, more progressive audience. Um, and the way, I think, to get reach those people um, who, like, you know, in rural Appalachia, not necessarily have a smartphone, okay. definitely don't have internet um, in a lot of cases, and, you know, are going to the library to, to read things or seeing it on local TV, which is why I mentioned local TV. Um, and and so I think that uh, partnering with local news outlets for Southerly is, is the way to, to reach those people. Um, and so we had a few stories printed in several Eastern Kentucky newspapers um, about the decline of coal severance taxes um, and how that's impacting how, how counties are funded. So um, so that was one example. And then um, I had the same thing in, in Mississippi. Um, and so I think that that is the way to do it. I don't necessarily... Um, you know, it's hard to sort of come in as a new, be like, especially reporting on environmental issues. You know, I very carefully phrase those sorts of things when, <laughs> you know, talk about the newsletter or, or go into a community. And I think that building trust with local news outlets is the way to to reach the, to reach those mm -hmm. populations. Um, yeah. Do you want to ask answer the question about imp measuring impact? Or there were two questions, so does that? Um, the other question was, um, how, how are you all approaching funders um, to get your operations funded? Um, I, that's a good question. Um, I was on the board of SEJ for 12 years and worked for a long time with Beth Park, who uh, was the master at funding this organization through philanthropic foundations. And um, what she taught us on the board and, and was that what you want to do is figure out what you want to do. It's your passion, and this is what you want to do. And, and it has to make sense, and you have to have a business plan and all that. But, but then go and find the funders who, for, for whom that, that is a, a sweet spot. And so you don't want to be chasing dollars by like deciding to do a story that you wouldn't otherwise do. So that's kind of the way, that's my basic philosophy about it. Um, as I said, I was really lucky. 
uh, all of us were who, uh, by the way, uh, for the record, I did get severance pay. I did get some severance pay. Um, um, so, um, uh, but uh, I had known Dennis Hayes, the head of the Bullet Foundation, for a long time. Um, he recognized that, that the strongest environmental reporting had been in the Seattle PI, although the Times gets in their licks too. Um, and uh, so they, I happened to know that person, and that was very fortunate because when, once we got that first grant, we could at least start paying expenses, if not salaries. And so that, and that, as I said, kind of catalyzed the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation grant, February of 2010, for $100,000. And at that point, we still couldn't pay ourselves because we still had five people, and we would run out of money. So a couple, it was 14 months eventually when enough people left, and then we could start paying our salaries. Uh, so anyway, but, the, but I, you know, as, as Beth says, if you've seen one foundation, you've seen one foundation. And so just be aware that everybody's doing their own thing out there. Um, I don't have any magic formula except to, you know, put together good proposals. And it helps, you know, to have a conversation with people first, but sometimes we just send in a, an LOI, a letter of inquiry. And, and what, you know, it's happened that we hit a $50,000 grant that way one time. So anyway, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a really weird world, and you don't know what to expect. Can I just jump on that real quick? I think it's really important, because we made this mistake where we're just looking for funding and some foundation comes to us and we talk ourselves into, well, we can make that fit into our mission. You know, we can be aligned with that. And because they're dangling $25,000, which is really not that much money, but, you know, it's like we can make it work. And, and it, it's just you just never want to do that because then you're contorting yourself to make it work. And you're moving off of your mission and more importantly, you run the risk of making promises that you cannot fulfill, and that is really damaging, N not just to your readers with whom you're trying to build trust, but to your funders um, who look to see how you've performed with other funders. So it's a, I'm so glad you mentioned that because it was, a, it was an early mistake that we made. So the, let me say that back and let me know if I've got it right. The question is when you're... When, when one is pursuing a, a, a reporting, uh, a story that is going to probably uh, antagonize a lot of the local uh, power brokers and stakeholders, how do you find a, a news partner to help you publish that story? Um, well, I, I can say th this is this is a little bit sort of one-off, but I know one approach that some some people uh, and and groups have been taking is to go directly to the readers. Um, for instance, um, there's a um, investigative news. Uh, project, I guess you could call venture based in New York called Sludge. Uh, and their whole raison d'etre is to follow the money in politics. Um, the pro of that is it's extremely, it's an extremely easy to explain news, uh, uh, you know, goal, because I just explained it. I couldn't explain my own project in the, those few words. And, um, and it, it hits home with readers. Uh, but then, and then, uh, on, so on the strength of, of sort of their, their 
very um, focused goal. Uh, Sludge had some early success in getting uh, startup funding uh, to be part of a platform called Civil, uh, which some of you may have heard of a couple years ago because it was Civil was also trying to build this sort of cryptocurrency community engaged model for um, saving the news. Um, the crypto part didn't work. Um, and so the upside is Sludge has done some great work. The downside is the crypto part, which was that basically the business model didn't work. And most of the civil newsrooms have had to now get into this same kind of territory that you all are in, which the includes the Colorado um, sun. sun, thank you. <laughs> and, um, and so Sludge right now is sort of in this, they've gotten, they, they've had to now just basically turn to their readership and uh, basically say we're gonna we're gonna stop publishing at the end of October if we can't uh, raise enough money. And I know what they are also doing is they're trying to show through the enthusiasm of individual donors, they're trying to show um, you know f um, uh, larger funders that there's um, there's a pathway for them to become a viable news operation, but. It's touch and go. And I mean, especially if you're doing work that is targeting uh, powerful people and, and powerful moneyed interests. Um, um, and if you don't have the clout of a ProPublica yet, how do, you, how do you try to solve that problem? I was thinking, Lisa, um, one of the things I've been trying to do is find one reporter at those places. And I think that that... Um, because there's typically a young reporter <laughs> that, uh, you know, that's their first job um, at some rural newspaper. And, you know, I've run into that quite a bit because like, I got yelled at in Eastern Kentucky by this man who was from New Jersey, so he had no right to yell at me. But he, <laughs> but he, he ran this conservative mountain town um, newspaper that, you know, was sort of like a, a microphone for the industry and um, the coal industry. And he, you know, I, did, I invited him to this event that I was talking about and he screamed at me on the phone. And then I went into his office and, and, you know, invited him and asked his reporters to come and all this. And he still yelled at me that I was like parachuting in and I didn't know what I was talking about. I was from Louisville, which like might as well be from New York City and, um, you know, all of this. And, and so, and he came and he came and he had like one of his reporters come who was a young woman who was like 25 and I talked to her a little bit, and she was kind of like, oh, this is really interesting, this, you know. And it's so funny to see that, because he left halfway through, um, and I've never heard from him again, you know. But, um, and that's, you know, that's what a lot of people read, so that's the hard nut to crack, right? But I think that, um, you know, I've tried to talk to, to that reporter, um, and I've seen the same thing, and, like, I've been trying to do a similar thing in eastern North Carolina. And I know a lot of those, as you know, <laughs> newspapers are like that, which is probably what you're talking about. And... Um, and I think that kind of finding one one person um, might be a good way in. Um, that's how some of the partnerships that I've found have worked. Um, and it's harder with, I think, if, or even starting like before the story is done, um, reaching out and being like, we're doing this, or we want to do this. Like, what what do you think is important? Um, what would, you know, what angle have you not seen t this taken or whatever it is? Um, and I think engaging more um, at the beginning, at the front end, uh, might help build those partnerships um, in a stronger way. Um, could I just, what you're saying is super interesting and I'd like to sort of get it preserved for our posterity, so could you maybe talk into the mic? Yeah, sorry. Sure. <laughs> 
I'm not going to start all over again. But no. um, so. Uh, this is a small newspaper, small town, relatively wealthy in Boulder County. Um, and I was talking to somebody about what what could make it work, because it's not ad revenue, it's not subscription. But um, it occurred to me that what we need to sell is the idea that we're we're like night watchmen. We're security officers. We're, we go to the not just the city council meeting and the county council meeting, but to the planning commission meetings and to the citizens group meetings. And, and over the last two or three years, I've been covering the oil and gas issues here in, in Colorado. And I've been stunned time and time again that I'm the only reporter there. And I'm not on assignment. I'm, it's, it's totally everything I do is on spec and sort of like what Robert was saying and, and Tina, that you know we we'll work together, basically we raise foundation money and then give subsidized journalism. I'll spend months on a story and there's nobody that's paying me enough to spend months on a story except this sort of mixed unfunding model or unintentional nonprofit journalism is what I call it. Um, and, but, but selling, maybe we need to take it to the funders and to the communities that this small town of Lyons, somebody told me that like 85% of the people are on two Facebook groups, and they're kind of competing Facebook groups. But if you went to every single one of them and said, you have to pay us to be your night watchman. I don't care if you read what we write. I don't care if you share what we like, what we write. But we are going to go to the planning commission meetings. And when it all of a sudden the vote is 5-0, where you thought it was going to be 4-1, the other direction, somebody is going to say, what the hell happened here? And, and start asking questions. And I think that you know, our afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, um, you know, role in society needs to be examined. And I don't know whether we need a reintroduction uh, or just sort of some ecosystem management here, but I'm, I'm wondering if, if this metaphor at all uh, resonates with any of you. Thank you. Absolutely, it does. Um, and I think the conversation is changing in that way. I think that Colorado Media Project is trying to shift in that way. There is discussion in Colorado about um, publicly funded journalism. Should there be some kind of taxing districts that um, might help support support journalism? I mean, I don't, I don't, it is a critical time, and I don't think it can be overstated the damage that the president has done to um, the work that we do to um, helping foster a distrust and um, creating alternate realities that make it very difficult for us to operate in. I have, um, I've been doing this forever, and I have family members. I have brothers and, well, one brother, and, and you know, cousins and, and uncles who will all say things to me about the media and how we make things up. And I'm like, you know me, you know, I've been doing this work forever and I can speak for my profession, but you know, that's a very real thing that exists out there that we're trying to combat. And I do think that it is critical and I think that the light is shining in certain places uh, that we more clearly articulate in a way that is not self-serving, but in a way that speaks to the larger stakes. Um, you know, what is happening and why what we do matters and um, why it matters to your communities. 
and, and and you're right. Like when you talked about the planning, you know, going to planning meetings and zoning meetings, nobody nobody goes to those anymore. Um, zoning is an articulation of a city's priorities, and nobody goes to those meetings anymore. So somehow laying out that broader picture, the broader stakes is. You're, you're right. The, the vocabulary needs to change. The framing needs to change. Um, so I don't really, my project isn't uh, as as regionally focused as yours has been, which I will say for the record was probably a disadvantageous decision on my part. Um, but um, what I will say, just from having done this, you know, four-month fellowship at a journalism school in New York City, I don't get the impression the the conversation you've identified is happening at the at the most moneyed levels of media. Um, certainly not in the venture backed media world. Um, you know what um, what we were told in the context of like you know a, being a budding group of entrepreneurial journalists and some and some of the people in the fellowship actually having already got going ventures what we were told when when people with money came in was um um we want what what investors are going to want to know is how soon they can get out with multiple, uh, you know, uh, uh, many times more the amount of money they put in, right? Basically, are you going to be the next BuzzFeed? Are you going to be the next Vox? Um, and um, like, and at the same time, we're we're talking about the the way local news is falling apart, and there's got to be a way to save the local news. So it I, it was totally schizophrenic, frankly, and um and and um, I would say, but what you know, but what if you're not going to return that kind of investment? What if the point is to simply have a going news business, and um, no one had an answer for that. <laughs> not not in New York City, anyway. And I think that's important even for folks around the rest of the country because, unfortunately, that's the mindset that everyone we're all grappling with. It's just like how much, how much, how many millions can you rake in to start your venture, and how soon can those people exit? with multiples on their investment. And clearly that's, you know, every single one of those news outlets I just named has laid people off, right? So is there an outright success story in that space? I'm not sure. Um, but people are continuing to start news organizations that way. Uh, venture money is still pouring in if you've got the right name and the right connections to, to get it. And, and, and I don't get the sense that this is something the news industry is really grappling with too hard. And, um, you know, and I, I think that's like, that's just like one of those open questions. Um, we have time for some more questions where it's, 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 uh, five after 10, we're going to run till about 10 20. Um, yeah. Yeah. These are great questions. Yeah, sure. Um, so, the, thank you. <laughs> so the question is, how does that newsletter startup thing work? Um, and um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you how it works in an idealized way, and then I'm going to tell you how it's been working for me. Uh, so in an ideal way, in an ideal sort of everything goes right way, you identify your niche 
presumably it's a combination of you have the expertise and people are looking people are looking for that particular news thing that they're not getting from somewhere else. So for instance, there's a one of the sort of storied uh, entrepreneurs in this space uh, publishes a newsletter called Sinocism. He's a China expert, and um, and that's a very rare set of expertise, and he's a good writer, and, um, and he's got a lot of trust. And so all those things combined with him uh, having a very sterling work ethic uh, means that he publishes this newsletter. Um, it's pay you can only read it if you pay. And, um, and he... Uh, from from all accounts, makes a pretty good, and I'm not saying anyone's getting rich hand over fist, but he's supporting himself. He's making a good living as an independent journalist. Um, and so that's kind of the idealized model. Um, and uh, for instance, Emily Atkins, who's been here, she just, uh, she just uh, left her job at the New Republic and started a newsletter called Heated World. Um, and um, she's got a combination of coming off the a very, you know, well-read platform at the New Republic. She's a great writer. Uh, she got some attention when she announced that she was starting the newsletter, like kind of what we call earned media, which is like some other news outlet writes about what you're doing. And she also, I know, built up a big subscriber base pretty quickly. I, I can't speak to the money side of it for her. But, you know, um, she... Right. So like what one of the sort of best practices models with if you're starting a, a newsletter that you want to earn income with is you'll start publishing, give people an idea of what you're doing, how good the content, sorry, content, how good the, you know, material and the news and the analysis is. And then you begin charging and um, um, you put and at that point the, your paying subscribers get the bulk of your of your publishing, and then maybe one issue a week. This could vary depending on what you're doing. But say, let's say you'll put out four issues a week, only subscribers get three, and then everyone gets four. Um, and um, and then there's kind of the way I've done it, which is um, <laughs> I. It's been a very interesting learning experience, and I think uh, which sounds sort of trite, but it's been important because I started the newsletter because basically I felt it would be the easiest way to get proof of concept. I already knew how to write newsletters. I've been writing for 20 years, and I've, I've even written newsletters for news outlets. So um, what I've found is that um, since what I'm doing is a little more, I, my goal was to try and break out of the news bubble that environmental news tends to be in. And that, I, I don't think I've done that. Um, I don't have, um, my subscriber base has not broken 500. And uh, I do have, it. what you mentioned earlier, like metrics, right? Within that metric, like my, my all the numbers are great. Like of those people, of those 400 to 500 people who subscribe, 30%, 20 to 30% open the newsletter. That's a fantastic rate by industry standards. 6% of those people pay me five bucks a month. Um, and that, again, like a good conversion rate is, is considered 1%. So I'm, it's clicking, but I haven't been able to break through and build the audience. And so it isn't, it's paying for the extra subscriptions I've taken out in, so that I can really 
uh, comprehensively find environmental stories that I think people ought to be hearing about and amplifying reporting of other outlets. But um, but it isn't it isn't a going concern money wise. And I've I've um, basically after trying to I doubled my publishing to two times a week and um, the pickup wasn't strong enough. Right, and I had basically set some metrics for myself, and and this is an important point actually. When when I think when in a news startup situation, um, it's good to have an idea of whether there's an exit point that you need to hold yourself to, um, and especially in my case where I, I I'm not trying at the moment to pay other people. It's really just me. Um, I I had to be on track for this to be a half time venture. Like this had to be bringing in about 50% of what I need to make by next March. And that subscriptions growth number is not on that track. And so um, at this point, I'm, I'm kind of retrenching. I'm continuing to publish. And um, I'm looking into whether, you know, my small audience does include a lot of reporters, for instance, is there a sponsor maybe out there who would value a super targeted product that reaches those that sort of elite audience? It wasn't what I was after when I started, though. Like, I wasn't looking to reach only an elite audience. Um, one thing I thought about, this question of like, well, if I started publishing four or five times a week, and maybe retooled the name of the newsletter a little. You know, I went, I talked to experts, I got some advice. And then I had to really think, do I want to be sitting here writing a newsletter four or five times a week all by myself? And that was no. <laughs> and it's better, I would much rather, if I'm going to be doing this startup thing, which is, um, I think uh, Robert said yesterday, he said, you know, entrepreneurial journalism is not a job, it's a lifestyle. And um, um, I, I've, I've learned through producing the newsletter that I'm not crazy about working this alone. I mean, it's even aloner than freelancing, frankly, because when you're freelancing, you're talking with your editors, you know? And uh, I don't, I, I, since I haven't been able to uh, bring in enough revenue to, to like say pay an editor a, a, or a copy editor to copy edit my work or whatever, I'm not talking to an editor. So I'm gonna retool, I'm still publishing. And um, because I do get great feedback from people that they, they find it really useful and um, I certainly notice an uptick. It's mostly, I have to say, been a reputational booster, but it hasn't so far worked out for me as a business. But I want to say that in the context of a couple things. One is that newsletters are a really great format. It's still growing. Um, it's, um, there are still a, a lot of room in that space to reach people with information that they want where they are, like right in their inbox when they're commuting to work or when they're sitting, you know, sitting down having a cup of coffee. Um, there are ways to make newsletters profitable. Um, like you, and and um, you know, I've made a conscious decision that the the most obvious direction to do that isn't the right one for me as a professional. Um, so, if folks are interested in talking about the newsletter space, I'd be happy to sort of point. You know, after this, there's a lot of great resources out there, and there's a lot of great publishing platforms that help make it very easy to both publish the newsletter and charge people for it. So it's it in some ways it's a really great space right now, but it's it's a job. 
<laughs> and if it's not exactly the job you want, then uh, probably better to figure out another way to be an entrepreneur. Is it's kind of the point I'm at right now. Can I just ask, does anyone who has a newsletter, like with your publication or yourself? Yeah, like a lot. Um, that's interesting. Does, do any of you all have interesting, like monet? I mean, maybe you can talk about real quick. Just like any monetizing models that you want to share at all. I don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, or maybe you do um, at the independent. Well, I know. I mean, I can. Uh, there are, again, like I th what I do know of like other people who've started out in the newsletter space and kind of organically grown the way you've been growing, Lindsay, and like branching out into when they're if they can if they can attract enough subscribers, they can begin to do events, for instance, like meetups in different cities. Like there's a a women in tech newsletter that has grown into really a viable business that way. Uh, there's a a newsletter specifically for freelance writers called Study Hall, which is um, uh, uh, on the Patreon crowdfunding platform. And that grew from like one newsletter a week telling you who's looking for pitches, uh, you know, and you paid $5 a month to, to get that newsletter. They've now got two newsletters. I think they're going to start publishing a third. They've got different tiers of membership, you know, where you, you get access to different resources if you pay $5, $9, a little bit more. And that's turning into a viable business because they identified that one really um, potent need, freelancers need needed to know where to pitch, they needed more networking opportunities so they could share tips and tricks and, and rates <laughs> with each other. And, um, and, and, and they, as they've grown, they've, they've been organically reinvesting in the business, which as far as I know, by the way, is for-profit, not non-profit, to expand. And that's the antithesis of that venture capital-funded model that you know kind of was emphasized in, in the education that I got. Um, but it is a lifestyle. And uh, yeah, it's, it's slow. It's slow growth, and, and you've got to have a way to keep yourself afloat while you're building up the business. Just uh, this, you know, for, before journalism, I had, uh, I had jobs. And then when I got into journalism, I had a profession. Uh, and now for the last 10 years, I've had a calling. So that's it. I mean, if, if you're going in on this, it's all in. All right, so we're at about 20 after. Um, are there any final questions? No. Okay, well, thank you all so much for coming. And, um, um, you know, feel free to follow up. I'm uh, e at EJ Gertz on Twitter, and um, um, I'm on the SEJ Talk mailing list uh, for SEJ members. It would be great if we could continue this conversation and, and hopefully help each other figure out how to make this, you know, both, both a profession and uh, a calling. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>